Sometimes I'm literally in bed thinking, this is literally what I do every day. I've tried to ask the brands to pay their workers' wages and it's just the most devastating, dire thing to think about. The fact that there are workers currently starving, forced into unsafe working conditions. Just it's If you read the reports that are coming out now about the situation of garment workers, it's so devastating. And the fact that we are having to do this daily, when brands have a choice, by the way, they are these are billionaires, these are millionaires, these are people who have the wealth. They could, they, they could choose tomorrow to pay their workers living wage. They have that ability. And the fact that we have to ask them to literally give, like just squeeze out like a few pennies just to stop their works from dying is really devastating. Hello and welcome. I'm Shiza, your host of Reinvision Business and co-founder of Up Effect. If you're new to our work, over the last five years, we've loved amplifying and supporting business models that prioritize equity, conservation, and economic empowerment. We're now advancing this work through Reinvision Business, a podcast highlighting the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems, and with their help, we'll spotlight models that are re-envisioning business. Together, we'll unearth a blueprint for an economy redesign. Today, we're bringing you a bonus episode with Maisha Begum, also known as Oso Ethical a blog addressing labour rights and exploitation in the garment industry. This episode is dedicated to the 1,134 lives that were lost in the 2013 Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh, considered to be the deadliest garment factory disaster in history. In this conversation, Maisha helps us re-envision the fashion industry. Maisha, thank you so, so much for joining us for Reinvision Business. It's such a pleasure to have you. No, honestly, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. <laughs> yeah, I've, um, I mean, this is the first time we're speaking, but I've been following Oso Ethical for quite some time and have leaned on it as a resource for my own kind of uh, journey in the fast fashion space. We've done, we've worked with a number of brands that have been looking at slow fashion to address the problems that stem from the current you know, practices are adopted yeah. within the fashion industry. And so sharing your your blog and leaning on your articles and the content that you put out and the research that you do has been so, so helpful for us and the creators that we've worked with. So thank you so much for amplifying, um, you know, what, what, what hasn't really been happening up till now in terms of how garment workers are impacted and the exploitation that occurs in the fashion industry. And I would really love to start at the beginning, Maisha. What were you up to prior to starting Oso oh oh Ethical that led you to conceiving this platform and bring, building it into the wonderful resource that it has turned into? Yeah, so... I was actually in my first year of uni when um, I started the blog and prior to that, so this is 2013 and this is when Rana Plaza had happened and for people who don't know what Rana Plaza is, in 2013 on the 24th of April, a eight-storey building which contained many garment factories collapsed in Bangladesh which killed 1,138 people and injured hundreds. Um, it was one of the worst industrial disasters in history. And it was, 
I still remember the day vividly. I was on my, I was about to go to college and I saw the news on BBC News and I saw people making ropes out of the clothing from the factory to pull people out. And we spoke about it in my biology class and it was something that really deeply affected me. And even prior to that, I'd always been aware of exploitation and what was happening with the clothing industry, but it never really hit me until Rana Plaza happened. And so at that point, I realized I wanted to do something, but I had a lot, to this day still, I have a lot of social anxiety. So the one thing I decided to do was create an anonymous blog called Also Ethical, which was on Tumblr at the time. It was very incognito. No one really knew it was there, apart from a few people who started following. And that was, to be honest, that was mainly about secondhand clothing and the clothes I had bought and ethical fashion brands that I liked, etc. And then as the years went on, I realized that this was not people in this field weren't really talking about exploitation. It was more about the new brands that were coming out. And I was kind of confused because I thought I assumed that people who are in the ethical fashion scene would be advocating kind of or even highlighting what was happening in the garment industry. But it was more about people's kind of consumption activities so that's when I re- I wanted to study more I tried got volunteering into I went into volunteering different areas to try and develop my own knowledge so then I could do my best to highlight what was happening as well as the grassroots um grassroots issues that were creating exploitation exploitation in the first place and so through all of that now you have what is also ethical now which is where I highlight what's happening on the ground I try and amplify workers movements organizing as well as address the root issues in a way that is very like just accessible to everybody amazing and obviously the the collapse of the Rana Plaza was an incredibly distressing event that triggered all kinds of movements Um, and it, it was a very very tragic incident and I would just love for you to just share a little bit about what led to that incident and just for those that aren't aware of what fast fashion is and how the industry contributed to it can you share a little bit of background into how we what led to um, triggering that event and a lot of the work that happened after that? Yeah, so fast fashion is essentially a model that was introduced by the founder of Zara. And it's basically the idea of speeding up fashion season. So typically the fashion seasons were obviously according to our weather season. So winter, spring, summer, autumn. But the idea was to bring out new collections quicker. So as little as every two weeks in order to create constant change in the stores so customers would keep coming and keep buying more and as a result this led to the fast fashion model where now brands try to seek cheaper clothes elsewhere and they outsource production so they can get clothes made cheaper because there's little regulation to stop these brands from going to the other countries and exploiting the workers there so you've got workers being given really intense targets to meet these constant demands for clothes very suddenly um very immediate um product and who sets those targets uh, the brands so the brands will essentially go to suppliers and say right i need this amount this x amount made in x amount of time and you need to do that um and if you can't then i'll go to another another factory and so that supply essentially has no choice but to try and make ends meet and obviously I don't condone the abuse that happens but it 
encourages an abusive environment where workers are then denied their wages because the bear in mind the brands give barely anything to suppliers to actually produce these clothes in the first place they give them minimal uh, like they give them barely anything to produce these clothes so the supplier has like forces this basically encourages an environment of forced labor where workers are forced to work overtime on minimal wages um it fosters um physical sexual abuse because workers are now being pressured into being pressured by suppliers to make these clothing it's just a very abusive environment that these brands are harness uh, use utilizing for profit and as a result um if you look at reports year on year you can see these, produ- these production targets are intensifying so workers are given less time to produce clothes wages are going down um well, the, the amount they give to the suppliers is going down. So it's just a very intense, intense model that's dependent on exploiting workers in the global south and also um, people of colour in the global north. So that's basically essentially the fast fashion model. Um, and again, it ties in with Rana Plaza because the brands give very little to support health and safety in factories if anything. So the amount they give barely covers any sort of uh, protection for workers. And as a result, and then also they need to hide the fact that they depend on exploitation. So they have this auditing system, which is completely flawed, where they have these audits of the factories to see how they are. And most of them are very corrupt and, or they, they work in favor of the brand essentially. So Rana Plaza had been checked in an audit. So you mean the so you mean the auditors are actually aligned with the brand's yeah, interests? Yeah, so the, com- the corporations, that there's a really good report from Clean Clothes Campaign um, from, was it last year? 2019, which highlights how many of these auditing companies, which are largely based in the global north, they work to accommodate the needs of brands to show that they are essentially eth- um, like safe, but they're not. So a lot of disasters, such as Rana Plaza and Ali Factory Fire in Pakistan, Tazreen Factory Fire in Bangladesh, these factories had been audited and checked off as being safe. And the next thing you know, there's been a catastrophe. So Rana Plaza was audited. And then the next thing you know, it's collapsed. So the fast fashion model essentially preserves the profits of brands at the expense of garment workers who are being exploited throughout this whole system. And the model is dependent on their exploitation to continue. And who are the actors that are involved in this? So you're saying it's the brands, it's the auditors, which obviously a lot of us would depend on to pick up these issues. Who who else is involved in contributing in 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 the state of the industry? I mean, it's largely an economic system, well, the capitalist system, obviously, and the governments in the global north benefit from this more than anybody, to be honest. So the fact that there is no regulation on any on corporations from the global north when they go to these countries and exploit workers, they exploit the in, the environment. There's it, everything is voluntary, and there's no drive to hold them to account because corporations are king in our in our sphere, and to challenge them is to reduce their profits, which inevitably inevitably benefit the governments here. So via VAT, for example. So our governments are very much profiting of this and there's no desire to to essentially hold them to account. And we, you can see, for example, in the UN, there's the, there's the principles, or what was it? 
there's there's some guidelines there's some UN guidelines for for businesses and they're really good they're really really good but the problem is they're not you can't hold brands accountable because it's all voluntary it just says brands should be doing corporations should be doing this which basically says how brand corporations should be behaving and mm-hmm. no one follows them no one needs to follow them because they're voluntary so there's a lot of big powers at hand who have the ability to hold brands to account. And that's why um, following Rana Plaza, there was the introduction of the Bangladesh Accord, which held brands legally accountable to um, protecting their garment workers in factories. Well, it, was, it was limited to health and safety, but it was very impactful and it had an, it, it improved the health and safety in factories that it covered. So it's, it's and if the sorry and if the brands didn't comply then they had to pay a large sum so the impact the potential is there and everybody can see and everyone knows this is the next step but the powers at the top are very reluctant to because corporations they have they're very powerful and they're very in line with governments as well so it's a very stick situation it's largely there's a lot of power at the top and there's people who can make change but they're very reluctant to do you think the fashion industry has always operated in this way or was there a triggering moment or a series of events that accelerated production and consumption of this scale and encouraged brands to operate at you know to to deliver on this um on this need that's coming from um consumers or have they fed into creating um that level of um, consumption? Yeah, I mean, in terms of fast fashion model, it was largely created to create the consumption demand. So it wasn't the other way around where consumers wanted more, so brands created it. The brands created it because they needed to make profit. And so the way that's been accommodated is through ongoing neoliberal policies that have allowed brands and multinational corporations generally to easily enter the global south, countries across the global south, they can do what they want. They get tax breaks. They There's no regulation on how they treat the workers there because essentially these multinational corporations know that countries in the global south are dependent on investment from like foreign investment from these corporations, which has been again being created through colonial, linked to colonialism and the what the North will call development. But really that just means opening up markets in these countries in the name of developments that they can enter them and do business in really corrupt ways. So it's part, it's, it's. And then much of, much of this group that they've been targeting are dependent on a source of income. And at times this is their only income. Yeah. And it's, that's, it's basically, it's all intentional. So by creating this, um, by creating an economic system in these countries where they are in, they are dependent on foreign investment for people to survive, then they know that multinational corporations come into their countries, which have recently come out of colonization, so in the 20th century. And so they are very their economic development is crucial. And so by the global north going into these countries and enforcing an economy that's dependent on exports it creates this, the only way, means of development is to continue getting investment from multinational corporations and they can then come in and exploit. So it's a very, a system that's very accommodate, is that's basically accommodating multinational corporations and allowing them to come into these countries and exploit and intensify exploitation because there's no regulation on them. 
Mm-hmm. And just shifting gears a little bit, just turning to the garment workers, can you explain a little bit about who are these garment workers that are making clothes for these large fashion brands? So the garment workers making clothes for fashion brands are largely workers, well, they're largely workers in the global south or people of colour, um, I don't like that term, or largely women of colour in the global north. Yeah, I hate that I know, term, but it's just so hard to find another term. Yeah, literally. So it's essentially women of colour largely in the global north and work women in the global south. And they are pretty much, I don't know what more I can say because they all, it's, it's a hard question because they're all very unique and you can't really generalize garment workers like but it's in terms of their conditions so it's normally people that come from marginalized communities in the sense they don't have access to traditional sources of income and they often turn to garment work as a way to provide for their families is that right yeah i mean garment the garment industry has provided that source of employment for a lot of women who didn't who weren't in who were coming from impoverished families so a lot of workers in Bangladesh for example a lot of them come from the villages where there's little economic opportunities for them so they come to the city to work in the garment factories and um yeah I guess that's it's basically women who come from quite poor families who need a source of income and the garment industry has created that because it's the garment industry has been advertised as a form of empowerment for women, which is and show, and has kind of presented itself as the beacon of female empowerment, I guess. And you can put that in quotation marks because right. essentially, it's what's called, it referred to as the feminization of labor. Feminization of labor is it feminization of labor? I'm pretty sure it's a feminization of labor. Um, I can't remember the researcher who talks about this theory, but it's really important because. It shows how rather than being a source of empowerment for workers, women are chosen to work in these factories because they are more easily exploited um, in terms of they can be, it's easier to get to pay them minimum wage, if anything, to keep them in low positions of power, to abuse them. So it's a very female orient, like 80% of the garment industry is women because they are essentially easily exploited by these brands well by supplies by in turn the brands profit from this so it's a very it's basically women being exploited in these factories got it and obviously the families are very much dependent on these women for for the income that they bring home do you think any of the movements that were conceptualized in response to the Rana Plaza collapse and just you know moving a response to the actions and the steps that fast fashion brands have taken. Do you think these movements have led to any meaningful results for these garment workers as well as the environment? And we can come to the environmental impact of this industry as well a bit later. I mean, if you want to look at any of the changes that happened in the garment industry, to be honest, were created by workers as opposed to brands. So while brands have put out these code of conduct and these beautiful looking corporate social responsibility spreads on their websites the reality is most of the change has been result of workers organizing so for example in Bangladesh all of the minimum wage increases have been as a result of workers mobilizing from all different factories protesting on the streets demanding an increase in their wage so 
most of the change has come from workers, to be honest. And in um, Bangladesh, for example, after Rana Plaza, there was a lot of a lot of workers started organizing and tried. Uh, there was a, a huge increase in workers trying to create trade unions and to organize and get involved. So a lot of the meaningful change, I would say, came from workers. A lot of the kind of a facade of change would come, I would say, came from the brands who promised things and said they cared but then as a but in reality a lot of them had to be forced to pay the workers the victims of the work victims of rhino plaza a lot of them are as we'll probably speak about later are denying workers wages during a pandemic because they can use it as an opportunity to make profit um they if you look at none of them are paying living wage in if you look at the stats in terms of um production like i mentioned earlier it's lead times are are shortening the amount weight brands are giving to suppliers to make the clothes is decreasing uh if you look at the uk sweatshop factory that's thriving so brands have said a lot since rana plaza but the question is whether they've done a lot and to be honest they haven't most of the changes come from workers organizing and mobilizing and as we'll talk about later again during covid we've seen that more than ever have workers have collectively organized and demanded change from brands and have allowed us in the north to join their cause for justice and we've kind of collaborated on that and and let's just talk a little bit about the impact of the pandemic and how brands have actually responded to the needs of their workers what has been the biggest issue impacting the garment workers that brands have failed to actually address during this time i think the thing they it's not a matter of failing for them. They basically abandoned their workers. And when the pandemic started and lockdown happened around the global um, global north, brands realized they were going to lose profit. And the easiest way to save and also to generally preserve their profits was to take it from the least people with least power in their supply chain and in their company and with the least legal protection. And that was their garment workers. So they decided to cancel orders they had already made with their suppliers. And the thing is with this system, again, it's very pro brands. So once an order goes to a supplier, they don't actually get paid for it until it's been produced and shipped off. So it's like, if I went to Tesco, and I bought something, Tesco wouldn't receive it until I received the money until I ate it or something like it's really ridiculous. So I and then at the same time, the brands will dictate how much they give. So it's a very backward system. But anyway, the so the the brands had given orders into the suppliers and the suppliers were making the clothes. So they had had ta- they'd taken loans out to pay, buy the raw materials. They hadn't paid their workers yet. And so a lot of these pro- clothes had already been produced and were in the factory or even had reached the European or US countries, or they were in the process of being completed and brands decided. And that cost, the cost of all of that is covered by the suppliers. Yeah. So they, they are, they take out loans. They have whatever money they currently have to pay for these products until, and the event, once it gets shipped, once it gets shipped to um, the brand, then they get paid. So when brands canceled orders, that meant that a lot of suppliers were left thinking how am I supposed to pay for cover all of this I've already paid for the raw materials I've already taken out loans to get this produced the workers haven't been paid yet and I can't pay the workers so and brands are basically like that's on you Um, that's on you and bear in mind this this while it 
affected the suppliers. It doubled down on the garment workers who weren't getting their wages, who have no means of savings because they've been paid poverty wages by brands for so long. And so it created this humanitarian crisis that we're seeing right now. And it's, in, it's only intensifying because the brands, globally, brands have re- refused to pay essentially pay their garment workers during the pandemic. And bear in mind, a lot of them actually made profit during the pandemic. So this isn't, um, this isn't an economic or tough situation. They've had tough decision they've had to make. It's a choice that they've made. And so as a result, there was a campaign called Pay Up where we tried to push brands to pay their, to pay up essentially and to pay the suppliers. And as a result, a lot of brands did U-turn because of collective anger and organizing from largely from workers in the factories, and then in turn from us on social media. I mean, obviously, that's absolutely horrendous. Just speaking about the pay up campaign and the role that also ethical plays in campaigns like this, where do you think has been the biggest challenge for you in terms of advocating for the for workers rights? What has been the response from brands during the pandemic, but also pre pandemic? I mean, largely, it's just the fact that brands can put out campaigns that are that perceive them to be ethical and environmentally friendly and inclusive, diverse, etc. And then seeing the reality on the ground, which is not the case. And the fact that this isn't largely publicized and it's very much if you're in this field, you know what's happening. But outside, it's very hidden, which is why I tried to push it and also ethical. And so that's been the hardest thing seeing the brands being perceived and presented as ethical, but they're not. And in terms of campaigning, the hardest thing has been to push some of the really stubborn brands and also not knowing whether they will actually pay because the pay up campaign, the brands commit to paying up, but um, whether they've paid or not, we don't know yet. And we're still having to wait to find out. And also another issue is where- How many, sorry, how how many brands have committed to paying up? Oh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I can name a lot of big brands that have U-turned. So, for example, H&M, Gap, Primark. Primark was a big one because first they initially told us that they weren't going to pay out flat out. They weren't going to pay. And then they decided that they were going to create a they were going to donate some money, but they didn't confirm where they covered all the suppliers. And then they, they after a lot of criticism, again, they committed to a wage fund to support their workers, but there's no evidence that that's actually helped workers. And then finally, after more pressure, pressing, they agreed to pay for, for cancelled orders. So there's been, if you go to, there's the Worker Rights Consortium, and they've had a list on their website of work of the brands who have and haven't committed to paying for cancelled orders, but a lot of them have U-turned as a result of collective action. I think that was a really positive, not positive, that was, well, this whole campaign has proved the, the power of collective action and demanding change from brands because once they see that there's a huge force against them, they are compelled to change. And the fact that people around the world were able to convince billion-dollar brands to pay their garment workers is a huge deal. So while it's extremely frustrating and difficult and it's still a long process, it really, really proved the impact and the potential the global community has to push for change. Absolutely. And it's really commendable that the role that you've been playing in pushing brands to take take action and move away from their current practices. And I think it's going to be it's a long battle. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to take some time. I mean, I recently heard, um, 
on in a recent interview where um, I think it was Lucy Siegel oh, yeah. that um, around how it would take H&M, what, 12, 12 years to actually reverse the impact that they ha- make that they have within, I think it's uh, one or two hours <laughs> in terms of the, the clothing that they produce. And this is just on the environmental level. Yeah. We can't imagine the, the human cost of what, you know, um, these, the processes and the policies that these brands follow, um, what the cost of that is um, on, in terms of the families that depend on them for a source of income. And I cannot imagine what that has done for these families during this pandemic. I'd love to hear a little bit more on, I know you've mentioned a few times how ethical fashion brands in quotation marks um, are some companies that are trying to address some of these, um, the issues that stem from fast fashion practices. And, and I, for me personally, I think change, you know, requires small incremental steps and we should recognize when a brand or an individual is taking the step in a positive way to actually um, make some kind of, you know, change in their normal um, way of doing things. And that should be celebrated to a certain extent. But I guess where we need to question um, those practices is what the motive behind those steps are. And so oftentimes what we see is that there's a lot of obviously greenwashing that's happening within the fast fashion industries. So a lot of the campaigns that come out, so for instance, whether it's a donation, you know, you can come into our store and donate your clothes. Um, that's often being done with the with the goal of getting people to keep coming back to the store, right? Yeah. And those clothes will often end up in landfills. It's not that they, you know, they are actively taking steps to um, create initiatives that change things from on a systemic level. So I'm interested to hear from you how how do we actually start to trust a brand when they actually you know, use terms like ethical, um, as part of their campaign, what does it, what does it mean to be ethical? I think, well, essentially to be ethical, it's very difficult because that's very loose term. And as you've mentioned, brands can use that to accommodate their own personal desires of what they want ethical to be. But for me personally, it largely is based around the rights of workers. So, the, for example, the cooperative, the workers large have a stake in the corporation. They have the decision. They are involved in the decision making of how their own working conditions are. Um, obviously, a living wage to support themselves. The right to unionize to again to create the work environment that they want. Safe working conditions. So, what all of us essentially believe ethical to be. And another thing is transparency. So, yes, yes. I'd love to hear a bit more about, you know, how how can a brand offer visibility into its supply chain so that they are truly transparent? Yeah. So there's been a big campaign about pushing brands to become more transparent. And by that, that largely means revealing their supply chain and the factories that are making their clothes and information about the workers and whether they're being they're unionized, etc., and by producing, and again, I think one thing that also should be highlighted is are the profits versus the workers' wages, which is largely hidden because a lot of these brands, to be honest, all of these brands, they they are work, paying their workers minimum or poverty wages. So a lot of transparency is transparency is key, so we can see exactly what is going where, and 
who's producing the clothes that we're making and in turn so we can investigate to see whether these workers are safe and are there where they're work receiving living wage etc can you talk a little bit about the difference between um a living wage versus a brand that's you know practicing being ethical what what is the importance of a living wage what does that afford a family yeah so living wage essentially ensures that a worker can afford to keep their family alive whether through like obviously they can if, eat they have enough for savings they can educate their children so it's basically a wage that allows families to survive but the work the the pay that workers typically receive just about keep them going and in most cases aren't enough so for example workers have to skimp on food their nutrition levels are very low they're struggling with rent they're in cramped living conditions their children can't go be educated so Living wage essentially ensures, as it does in the UK, the living wage would ensure that workers can protect themselves and their families and also have enough to save. So, I mean, you you shared a little bit about how uh, those that are being provided a living wage should be able to save, should be able to provide for the basic necessities, but also get their children into education. Shouldn't the goal actually be to help these individuals come out of their circumstances so that they could become financially independent and not be just kind of getting by on the wage that they are afforded yeah and that's the problem I think living wage allows that because workers are able to save they can educate their children to get in to obviously get into better jobs with the wage they're currently receiving it's literally just taking each day as it comes and now with covid obviously a lot of workers can't even do that so the wages right now are pretty dismal and do not even allow that they keep them stuck in poverty which is why the whole female empowerment rhetoric that a lot of brands and people in multinational corporations regurgitate regarding their supply chains are very contradictory when you look at the reality on the ground for workers. And just, you know, speaking on the topic of wages, I recently came to understand that, you know, actually boycotting fast fashion brands works against the garment workers. So for a long time, I've, I've, been of the opinion that actually not buying from these brands is the answer but then yeah me too I think you, you <laughs> I had that as well yeah, yeah and it's been a big educational process for me actually recognizing that when you actually take away um that small bit of income then you know you're you're not impacting the brand you're actually impacting the garment workers on the other end of the supply chain yeah I mean this was exactly the same learning thing I went through where I initially began with boycotting if you look at I don't think it's even accessible but very old posts actually yeah, they're on my Facebook where I talk about boycotting etc so it was something I genuinely felt very passionate about but after having read and well spoken to people as well as reading the accounts from workers and trade unionists in the global south who we should be listening to predominantly because they are they are having the lived experience they advise that that is this is that they don't want a boycott all they want is just obviously fair working and living conditions and because the gov- the country is largely dependent on this investment from brands and so if you see in historically when you've looked at attempts to boycott the garment industry it hasn't gone well so for example, in one instance, there was a, in America, I think they were trying to implement a policy where they were going to boycott any brands or that were involved in child labor. And so the suppliers from Bangladesh, they instantly, without this policy even going through, decided to fire all the child, la- child workers. 
without any sort of protection for them. And as a result, a lot of children were being put at risk of entering even more precarious working conditions and the families were put at a loss put at a loss because their one source of income had gone so it's a very systemic issue that we can't I mean the policy didn't go through but um it highlights that this is a very systemic issue that can't be limited to boycotting as a solution because it's a very kind of knee-jerk reaction when there's a whole there's thousands of millions of workers who will suffer from that because brands essentially don't care. They will move from one com- one country to the, ne- to the next. So even with Bangladesh, when the there's the, they've got the accord now protecting health and safety, there's more awareness of the poor working conditions there. So now they're having to go from one country to the next to look for more precarious working conditions that they can th- profit from. So they've recently gone to Ethiopia, Myanmar, um, diversifying their pool of exploitative labor so brands can easily move here and there wherever they want where it's most convenient but workers don't have that privilege and it's a very systemic issue that requires systemic change not very kind of knee-jerk boycotting and on that same thread of thoughts in terms of the accessibility of the current um fashion brands so for instance if um, you know, a lot of the the cheaper brands that are based on fast fashion practices, those are what, you know, for instance, working class, um, the, the, the average working class member of society would be able to buy from. Yeah. The ethical brands that have come out, a lot of their pricing are targeted at a very small market um, that has access to capital and can actually afford buying from them. Can you share a little bit about um you know, what What led to ethical brands taking that approach where they're only catering to a small segment of the markets? Um, again, this is something that I've also, um, it's taken me t- time to understand because I, I, I get that, you know, obviously there is a large cost that comes to obviously ensuring that the workers are paid a living wage and ensuring that the supply chain is, you know, adopting carbon neutrality. Then there's, you know, so many elements that goes into building a really, a truly ethical supply chain. And so there's a premium cost that comes to that. But how can we make the brands that are being more conscious, for instance, cooperatives that are addressing this need, the products that they put out so that they can be accessible to a wider segment of society? Yeah, I mean, with a lot of ethical brands, if they are incorporating all the essentially ethical policies that should be put, they should be advocating, it is going to be a lot more expensive and so it's a very difficult situation because inevitably those with better living conditions oh sorry those with higher wages and in a more privileged position are able to afford them so it's it's a very yeah it's a very tough situation but I think at the same time so for me do you think it comes down to consumption habits as well, do you think that could play a role in actually, um, you know, addressing, you know, we're buying products that we truly need. But then at the same time, if you're buying from a brand that produces, um, you know, uh, in high volumes with the goal that, you know, the, the products aren't made to last. So a lot of them are single use and they're disposable, in which case you will end up having to consume more. And that's why, you know, the fast fashion industry operates the way it is. So it's a, it's, it is a very tricky situation. And I'm wondering whether there is an answer to that. I think personally that you should 
you shouldn't feel guilty for buying from fast fashion brands. And again, like we said, the whole boycotting thing, it's not a matter of completely avoiding the situation. If you need to buy something from a fast fashion brand, don't feel any guilt about that. If that's all you can afford, that it shouldn't be a question of, or you shouldn't be questioning your morals if that's where you need to buy your clothes from, that's where you need to buy your clothes from. And so I don't think it's so much a matter of consumer habits because a lot of people are not in the position, particularly in a country where we are, where minimum wage does not accommodate working con- living conditions in this country and the country is doing very little to support people, in, to, to support workers. So I think... In which is you can't, you know, normally you wouldn't be able to afford a high quality durable item yeah. that's made, made available for what, £500? Exactly. So it's a very catch-22 situation. And I think... For, I think for ethical brands in turn, I think it's, I mean, generally, I believe consumption, it's a matter of controlling consumption generally, like getting used to not buying clothes every other week or something or buying new clothes. And for me, this is a learning curve I've had to go through where I don't have to wear, yeah, yeah, literally, I don't have to wear something new every celebration, every birthday, every party, every Eid, like I, it's not. I'm trying to yeah. my it's bit for for my own. It's still a battle between my mum and I. Oh my god! Trust me, like when I tell them I'm gonna wear what I wore last Eid or something, they're like, "You yeah. what?" I'm like, yes. And then we discovered a charity shop with that sold Asian clothes, and a lot of my like more distant relatives are very disgusted by that. But it's so it's a huge like it's a huge accommodation for people's mindset to get used to, and even the whole. Getting like consumer thing of not buying something new every. I mean, to be honest, it, yeah, it's very difficult, and so it's basically training your own mind to get used to that situation. Where we we don't need to be buying clothes every other day, every other week, and so with these, with a lot of these ethical brands and the slow fashion movement, it's about reducing your consumption. And so because they reduce your consumption, you can afford to buy one big thing because you haven't bought so many little things. So I can see that that's where the style movement is going, which is pretty cool. But it's very hard yeah. as an individual to get used to that idea. Yeah, I, can't, yeah. I mean, I suspect as, as you know, as the industry grows, the market grows, um, the prices may eventually come down. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an econ- economist by any means, but I suspect that's what will happen. But at the moment, given that they're, they're catering to a very small group of the market, they need to be able to keep their costs high um, to be able to afford, you know, the the cost of maintaining the supply chain. I I don't know. I'm just making it. I'm speculating here. But I guess the the problem that I find is how a lot of the guilt is pushed towards the consumer yeah. rather than businesses. And my question here would be: Who should be taking the responsibility? Should it be consumers pushing businesses to do better, or should businesses be pushing consumers to do better? It should definitely be the former. So it's definitely, the blame is definitely on the corporations who are choosing a business model that is dependent on exploitation. And it's sad that as as consumers, as individuals in society, we need to push brands to pay their workers their wages that they are owed, which are poverty wage in the first place. Which is very and basic. Honestly, sometimes, basic, it, some, basic. sometimes I'm literally in bed thinking, this is literally what I do every day. I've tried to ask brands to pay their workers wages. And it's just the most devastating, dire thing to think about. 
the fact that there are workers currently starving, forced into unsafe working conditions. Just it's if you read the reports that are coming out now about the situation of workers, it's so devastating. And the fact that we are having to do this daily when brands have a choice, by the way, they are these are billionaires, these are millionaires, these are people who have the wealth. They could they they could choose tomorrow to pay their workers living wage. They have that ability and the fact that we have to ask them to literally give like just squeeze out like a few pennies just to stop their works from dying is really devastating. So yeah, so the corp- the power is all in the corporation's hands in terms of who we should be blaming because they have the ability to change the conditions. They've created these conditions in the first place because they are dependent on it for profit and it's just a very sad situation we're in. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I completely agree. I, I guess my my next question would be um, what I see a lot, what I see happening with the slow fashion movement, but also a lot of new, you know, um, progressive fashion brands that are coming about. A lot of their branding is based on addressing the environmental costs of the fashion industry, which is of course yeah. huge. And it's it's one of the largest contributors to climate change. I guess my problem with that is not that why are they focusing con- on conservation and um, addressing the environmental costs, but why is that more of a focus versus in ensuring that the workers are paid a fair wage and protecting the workers that are involved in the industry? And one of my um, impact strategist friends put it really well that, you know, people naturally are unlikely to support something that's happening very far away from where they are living something that they can't see and so that problem is not really something that they need to deal with whereas climate change is impacting us on a day-to-day level and that's something that we can see on 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 a very present basis and I'm, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on that that's pretty much yeah so there's a lot of things behind that and for me it's been something that's very frustrating because it's like if I say something about the impact of the of the environment of brands on the environment I could get so much reception but when I talk about the workers well maybe not so much now but previously it was so hard to to even address it and I think it's due to many reasons I mean firstly there's a cognitive dissonance element where as individuals, we don't like knowing that we are doing something that's immoral or goes against our morals. And so a lot of the a lot, the way we can go around it is essentially avoid it or try to justify it. And so avoidance is the easiest policy because, I mean, with the environment, there's a lot of ways people can believe they're making the change, which is through recycling, not using straws, etc. So there's some, kind of something they can use to make themselves feel better. Like I, Also the fact that they are not responsible, essentially. It's mainly the corporations and they there's ways for them to alleviate that through their own individual actions but with the workers situation it's very difficult I mean I guess that's why the ethical slow fashion movement has arisen because now it's kind of like a guilt it's a guilt reliever in a way because it it makes you feel better that you are being part of the change by buying something your consumer habits are are said to be changing the system and you're not part of that system um, so I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance around the garment industry and being complicit in the exploitation, which is the rhetoric that's been pushed a lot in terms of, for example, I went on an interview with 
not an interview, a debate on the BBC Asia Network about this. I asked them if they could talk about the garment industry and ended up being one of the speakers on their debating. And they constantly kept asking me, oh, well, or even them as well as the, not them, but the people who were calling or dining in or even the people who are around me, they kept asking me where my own clothes came from. If I'm speaking about garment industry, where are your clothes from? And I think it's that blame that has so continue to silence people because everyone feels complicit yep. so I think that's one big issue and luckily I can I, I can answer my way out of that but a lot of people would feel that guilt so I think that's right. one situation I think what you said hit the nail on the head it's the fact that it's very distant and so for example with when the revelations about the UK sweatshops came out we give credit to Amira Jeeva who oh. actually said that <laughs> to me <laughs> no. but um yeah with the UK sweatshop factory stuff when that came out everyone was livid contacting boohoo angry but when you talk about what's happening in Bangladesh it's very distant and there's kind of silence and I think again it's that relatability and the kind of it's on your doorstep so you can't avoid it whereas the garment industry is very distant and it's very much easy to avoid and you can it's easier to kind of listen to what the brands are saying or what they are doing rather than what is actually happening on the ground and so it's very much a combination of those. Um, I forgot the question was, I just kept talking. <laughs> no, no, you answered the question. Oh, okay. That was great. <laughs> just on, on, the, on the point of the environmental cost, can you share a little oh, yeah. bit about, you know, how this industry is one of the world's largest polluters? Yeah, I mean, we are essentially stripping the earth of its of all resources and polluting for example Bangladesh polluting rivers with dye um there's a lot of waste involved the use of plastic um single-use plastic uh particularly in the global south because again there's the whole second-hand industry where all our second-hand clothes are being dumped across Africa in um for example I think Tanzania is one of the countries and a lot of the countries have been fighting back because it's just the this the ability we have in the global north to just use a piece of clothing once or twice and then give it away and like have it dumped in another country is just really vile and has sentiments towards colonialism again so it's a very it's basically a form of waste and it's it's again our negative workers because so when you when you say colonialism can you elaborate on that yeah so Essentially, the global north is the dump for the excesses of of capitalism that's pushed by the global north. So the fact that we have clothes produced in the global south, we use them once or twice, they get dirty or stained, and then we ship them to be dumped in the global north. The global south, like it's our dumping ground and we can do what we want. We can, we have kind of freedom to do as we wish is very it's like a again it's just very disgusting and the fact that we have the ability to do so freely is wrong I mean a lot of countries have been standing up against this now and rightly so and I hope they have a hope they can hope they can they can ban. I mean it's very difficult because now there's a very second-hand clothing industry in some of these countries where the the people um in the country can now sell these secondhand clothes and create a business out of them. So it's going to be a very gradual process to get rid of them because it destroyed their own textile industries. So because these clothes are cheaper, the textile industries in these countries went downhill. And so again, again, with the whole boycotting situation, it's not a matter of 
ending it it's a very gradual process but essentially we've used we we use these countries to exploit and to get rid of waste based on tax exploitation like it's a very twisted system we have are there any examples of brands that aren't doing this and are getting it right um so in terms of the, the secondhand clothing that's more to do with clothes that are donated and it's more about the system so no brands are explicitly um dumping clothes but um the clothes that we wear we donate them and then the excesses that don't get don't, can't go through to charities a lot of them are shipped off to country the global north to be dumped a global south to be dumped so um but and sorry and i also recently learned that um sorry to cut no. you off um i i recently learned that when you actually return an item to a store so if it's through online shopping for instance or even in store um a lot of those items also end up being distributed as secondhand clothing and ultimately ending up you know in tanzania for instance yeah, wow. Is that true? I didn't know about that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really, actually, I don't follow a lot of the environmental stuff. <laughs> okay. But no, it I'll, sounds I'll about right. <laughs> sounds about right. So let's go with it. <laughs> just to kind of wrap up then, I, I would just kind of love to hear from you. What are some steps that you, Maisha, or myself and our family and friends can start taking to, I guess, push brands to do better? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think I'd say alleviate your guilt because essentially we are all complicit in exploitation, whether it's the laptop we're using, whether it's the food we're eating, whether it's the clothes we're wearing. But it's not a matter of how guilty we feel. It's about what choices we make on how we can push for change. And if you look again, if you look at the pay up campaign, the impact we had, our collective power to challenge these brands and force them to reverse their decisions is it was really it was really hard that that whole I mean this whole thing has been very hard to document and to read about but when you look at those things you realize how monumental our collective impact has and so I would say for everybody um to keep challenging the brands that you're buying from whether it's emailing whether it's tweeting whether it's um commenting on an Instagram post and because what we need more than anything is just people speaking out because people don't speak out. Like it's very, I understand why people don't speak out because of the whole guilt associated with it. But I think once we get out of that and we start speaking about the exploitation, because if you think about it, fashion is one of the biggest industries, if not the biggest industry in the world, how is it that the garment work, the exploitation of garment workers is not a common discussion among us? Like there, and especially the audacity of everything that's been going on with COVID. It's just, really sad so I think use your collective power because we've all got it we've seen the impact of it and we can keep pushing this we can keep pushing change every time you see a brand put out a greenwashing uh, campaign challenge you every time you see them put and yeah sorry what what is greenwashing for oh, those sorry, that greenwashing is when brands present themselves as, as environmentally friendly and caring about the environment but really their business practices are quite the opposite in terms of how they treat the environment how they treat their workers and it, it's something that's been used a lot recently since the whole pandemic um, scandal where they refuse to pay their workers so a lot of them are adopting sustainable 
campaigns, especially H&M has been a big one, and also diversity campaigns. So if you see a brown woman on a campaign and it's supposed to be about her empowering herself. There's been a lot recently. And if you want please question them on how a Muslim woman on a Nike ad is great is is empowering but then the muslim woman in indonesia being exploited is by that same brand like how does that work it's very challenged them on these things because the more they get caught out the more they feel the need to they, they feel pressured and we can all collectively do that i mean there's a lot of systemic stuff that can that needs to be done in terms of legal accountability and um yeah, a lot of stuff that else needs to be done. But in terms of like individual power, we have the power to create the change that we've seen happen. And so it's just a matter of speaking out. Uh, also, one thing, a pivotal thing I completely forgot is to support workers and unions because, as I mentioned earlier, they are the they are the ones creating the change on the ground. So what I do, like it, it I appreciate what everyone says about what I do, but it's the bare minimum. So you've got workers on the ground who are protesting at the risk of their own lives, who are being beaten on the streets. Right now, as we speak in Bangladesh, garment workers are still protesting for their wages from March. And they are they are doing the, the heavy work. They are doing the research on which brands we need to be targeting. They are the ones mobilizing their friends and families. They're the ones sitting outside on streets for days demanding justice. They are the ones who are pushing the change and have historically pushed the, for the change. And we are doing the light work of just contacting a brand and pushing for change. Like it's that collective effort, but it's acknowledging that women workers have always led for ch- that led to the change and listening to them, listening to trade unions on the ground um, and just acknowledging our position. Like I did an article on this about our position as activists, because it's great for what I do, but I always make sure what I do is based on what, based on the work on the ground and listening because a lot of activists in the north we kind of do things that we think are a bit great for example the boycotting situation a lot of us push that because we assume it's the right way but once you listen to people on the ground it's a completely different situation so it's very much posi- knowing your position in this in this campaign and to push your privilege which is your ability to speak out to contact brands and your freedom to do so because you're I don't, I don't risk, I don't fear my for my life when I do this. Whereas my sisters in Bangladesh are on the streets getting beaten. So it's very much knowing your privilege and your power and utilizing it as much as you can. So listening to workers, amplifying their voices and not boycotting. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maisha. Thank you for helping us re-envision the fashion industry. This has been such an enlightening conversation and I've learned so, so much. And I'm sure many of our last listeners will find um, a, a lot for um, them to ha- reflect on and also consider when they build their new enterprises in response to the practices currently adopted by the fashion industry. Thank you so much. So where can our listeners find Oso Ethical and learn more about your important work? Thanks. So I'm mainly on Instagram and Twitter. So again, they're both also ethical. So O-H-S-O-E-T-H-I-C-A-L. I have a blog which I upload. So for example, I have a page where which has all the links to contact brands about the cold COVID situation. So you can go to osoethical.website and yeah that's it (laughs) thank you again Maisha it was so wonderful having you
We'll be back on the first Wednesday of every month with a new episode. To ensure you don't miss out, please subscribe to Reinvision Business on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or something else. If you've enjoyed our episode, please leave us a five-star review so that others can learn about Reinvision Business. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle UpEffect for updates on the next episode. Until next month.